This is Redemption Radio with Pastor Cody King of Redemption Calvary in Commerce City, Colorado. Here's a preview from Pastor Cody of today's message. There's a redeemed version of you, and that's who God has made you to be. And if you're not living that life, if you're not who that person is, then you are selling yourself way short of the life that God has for you. That He has created you and crafted you and designed you for so much. But if you are settling for living to your fleshly, sinful, self-centered desires, then you are settling for a life that God never intended for you. We live in a world that is infected by the curse of sin. And this sin infects our bodies too. Despite our best efforts to be good, we fall short time and time again. But this isn't what God wants for us. And that's what Pastor Cody addresses today, as he reminds us that living in submission to Christ is the only way to truly live a good life. By rejecting Christ, we'll never live up to our potential and we'll perpetually be slaves to sin. But we were created by God for so much more and will only achieve fullness through Christ. Now, turn in your Bible to the book of Romans chapter 7 and join Pastor Cody for today's edition of Redemption Radio. We say, how could a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? The entire argument's based on a false premise. There are no good people. The right question to ask is, how could a holy God do anything good for such wicked people? That's the right question. And when you ask the right question, you get to the right answer. You see, the issue in all this, it's not our need for more understanding. We tend to think if I just knew more, if I just researched more, if I just taught more, if someone just explained it to me better, then, then I could, then I would get it. You see, right knowing doesn't produce right doing. You need something more than that. Yeah, good information is appropriate. Yes, understanding the right things is, is necessary, but it's not enough. It's not enough to change you. You see, knowing right and wrong doesn't stop me. You ever knew what you should do and didn't do it? You ever knew what you shouldn't do and you did it? Isn't that what he says in verse 19? There's this frustrating position that I'm in. I know what I should do and I don't do that. I, I know what I shouldn't do and I end up doing that anyway. You see, knowing the difference between right and wrong isn't enough to stop you. You see, the grip of the flesh on your soul is so strong that it will not allow you to do the good. And it keeps you, going back to verse 14, sold under sin. You don't even belong to you. You have to do whatever it tells you to do. It's kind of a bleak picture. There's this war being fought within. Well, secondly, verses 20 through 25, we see that there is deliverance. Our deliverance from Death. Now, before it gets better, it gets a little worse. Isn't that usually the way it goes? It's like that saying, the night's always darkest right before the dawn. That's very true of this section as well. Verse 20, it says this, Now, if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. You see, by doing the evil and not doing the good, it reveals that there is way more evil within me than I'm willing to admit. Maybe I keep it at bay. Maybe I hold it back. Maybe I dress it up and make it look pretty. Maybe I'm able to kind of hide the stench of it for a time, but it's still there. It's still hiding and lurking within me. Now, when he says there in verse 20, I no longer do it, right? He says, now, 
if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it. This isn't some sort of like spiritual cop-out that Paul is giving. It's, it's not really me. It's just, you know, it was my imaginary friend. He did it. It's like what the, your two-year-old tells you. I just saw a video recently from a guy that he posted that his daughter, I think she was around three, three years old. She had gotten hold of some markers and she decided to, to draw on herself. Anybody have kids do that? I had a few that did that. And she drew on her eyebrows and drew all over her legs and her tummy and everything. So she had marker all over her. And they were asking her, what happened? What happened to you? And it was very clear that she had done it to herself. And she's like, what are you talking about? I don't even know what you're saying. You know, she's trying to deny that anything's wrong at all. And then eventually as they press her, she blames it on her older brother, you know, like uh, that he did it to me. And it's very clear that she's the one who had done it. You see, we tend to, to do the same kind of a thing. But that's not what he's doing here. It's not, he's not passing the buck or whatever. He's not trying to get out of responsibility. What he's, what he's saying, he's getting at this. Here, this is huge. You got to get this. Your flesh, your sinful nature, that's not the true you. There's a redeemed version of you. And that's who God has made you to be. And if you're not living that life, if you're not who that person is, then you are selling yourself way short of the life that God has for you that he has created you and crafted you and designed you for so much. But if you are settling for living to your fleshly, sinful, self-centered desires, then you are settling for a life that God never intended for you. And you're enslaving yourself to something that will only kill you. It will never give you life. Here's how 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life is gone has begun. This is an essential mentality. If you don't get anything, get this. This is an essential mentality to understand the anatomy of your temptation and your sin. Your enemy is the old you and he's still living inside you or she, you know, whatever. You're not a dude like me. So they're, they're living inside you and they're looking to destroy you. That's your enemy. Your enemy isn't that person Your enemy isn't your boss. Your enemy isn't some political system or that political party or that situation. It's not a virus out in the world right now. It's not, you know, if if I just had this thing or your enemy isn't Satan, your enemy is you. Now, there are other things out there that can bring that distraction, but your biggest enemy is you. And most Christians don't categorize the flesh as the enemy who needs to die because that's too mean. I mean, just, you know, I don't want to be too, I don't want to be too extreme with any of this stuff. I don't want to be one of those born agains. Well, that's exactly what you need. That flesh needs to die. And we, you know what we do with our flesh? We spend time coddling it. We spend time comforting it. We spend time feeding it and caressing it. And, oh, you, you feel sad. Let's go sit on the couch. Oh, you don't, you don't like when I tell you no. Okay, I'll tell you yes. And we think I'll appease my flesh a little bit. And then it'll leave me alone. And then I'll be able to go and I'll be able to live holy. And you know what happens? It becomes an ugly monster that looks to devour your entire life. It's like a zombie version of you chasing you down, looking to devour you and eat you. And you're like, well, here, just eat my arm a little bit. That'll be okay. Stop doing that. Like, no, that's exactly the opposite of what you need. You need to put a bullet in that thing's brain. That's what you need to do that's how you're going to survive this thing, right? So get the shotgun and go to town. Here's the, here's the reality. Don't get the shot. Okay. It's an analogy. All right. Anyway, most people, 
spend too much time catering to their flesh and comforting their flesh. They're making it their buddy instead of their enemy. And then they wonder, why is it so hard? It's so hard because you're feeding the wrong thing. It's so hard because you're giving effort, energy, you're giving time, you're giving your life to the thing that's looking to kill you, to your enemy. So you got to label it right. You got to label your flesh as your enemy, not your friend. Look at verse 22. He says this, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. You see, there are two laws set in juxtaposition against one another. There is the law of God and the law of sin. And these are at war with one another. It's, it's very similar to the way the Bible also describes the flesh, right? We've been talking about that and the spirit. There's the sinful nature within you. And if you're in Christ, if you're saved, if you've given your life to Jesus, you've recognized that his blood, his death, his burial, his resurrection was for you to save you, to buy you from yourself. And now you don't just have the flesh. Now you have the Holy Spirit of God. There's the flesh and the spirit at war within you. That, that as a new man being born again, you have the spirit and the spirit delights to please God. Notice he says that there in verse 22, for I delight in the law of God. The spirit of God delights in the law of God because the law of God isn't a problem. The law is good. That's the right thing. And so the spirit delights in that, but the flesh hates this idea. Here's how Galatians 5.17 describes it. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. That's why you feel that war, right? So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. See, here's what the flesh does. It brings you into captivity. Do you see that there in verse 23? It's bringing me into captivity. You're a captor of the war. You're a prisoner of war and your flesh is the enemy. It's overpowering you. It's keeping you in prison. The more I fight and try according to my flesh, the more I'm imprisoned by a tyrannical overlord. And the tyrannical overlord, it's not Satan, it's you. You're the tyrannical overlord in your own life. I'm to blame, nobody else. It's not my wife's fault. It's not my kid's fault. It's not my situation's fault. It's not my bank account's too low. It's not that. It's not that guy cut me off in traffic. It's, it's not, well, Satan's just a you know, meanie and he, he made fun of me today and he tempted me. And so now I guess I have to sin. Temptation came, I just have to sin. No, you do not. No, you do not. Your flesh is overpowering you. That's the issue. Look at verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? from this body of death. Trying to spiritually overcome my failure by my power is an exercise of foolishness because I don't have what it takes. I'm not enough. That's what he says there, oh, wretched man. Now, I don't know what the image is that you have in your mind when you hear the word wretched, but here's what this word is actually describing. This word is describing being exhausted and being worn out. It's the word picture of a warrior who's just gone through a really hard battle and they're completely spent. They have no more energy. That's the idea 
of wretched, completely spent. Now, what is more wretched? What is more wretched than you giving your all, doing your best, giving everything you've got to win your war with sin and you still fail? What's more wretched than that? Than realizing I, I don't have enough. I can't get to the top of this mountain. It's like a false horizon. Every time I think I'm going to make it, man, it's just, there's more to go. There's more to be done. Now, there's a word picture here that I think is really crazy and really interesting. I think it's crazy that he even uses it. Look at what he says there in verse 24. He says, who will deliver me? This is where the shift happens. This is great. We're going to get to that in just a second. But notice what he says there at the end of verse 24, from this body of death. Now, that phrase is a very specific phrase, and it actually references a practice that was not common. It was fairly rare at this time, but it was widely known. And what would happen is if a king or a dictator or some, somebody wanted to really punish somebody the worst way possible, what they would do is they would literally tie a corpse to that person's body. They, they would take a dead body and tie it to your arms, tie it around your torso, tie it to your legs so that you literally were carrying a dead body around with you everywhere you went. Now, Paul cries out and he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because that's the image, that's the word picture that he wants you to see of your flesh. It's like that. It's like this dead body tied to you that's just killing you. And that's what it would do. Prisoners who were sentenced to this, they would eventually be overcome by all sorts of gross diseases and de the decaying, there's a corpse literally decaying attached to you and eventually you would die a slow, painful death from just being basically decaying as this corpse decayed as well. And Paul is saying, who's going to deliver me? I've tried to cut it off. I've tried to break the chains, but I can't. I'm not strong enough. They're too big. I can't get it off me. I need someone to rescue me. I need someone with, a, with an oxyacetylene torch to come cut this thing off of me. Who can do that? I, I have nothing left. I can't cut myself free. I need help. Here's what David Guzik says in Romans 7, 13 through 24. What Paul has described for us is the person who wants to please God who wants to live a righteous life, who wants to overcome sin, and they're trying their hardest and all the energy of their willpower to do it, but your willpower can't do it. If your willpower could do it, then you wouldn't need Jesus. You don't need your willpower. That's not what you need. You need supernatural God-given power. You can't get that by trying hard, looking within. You see, this war within, it can be won. It has been won. And the one who won it is Jesus. Notice there in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who can save me? Who can deliver me from this body of death? Jesus can. And Jesus has. He's already won. He's already defeated sin. He's already defeated death. And by faith, when I look to him, I appropriate that victory into my life. It's like cutting that flesh off of me and shedding that body of death. It's no longer attached to me. You see, here's something that's crazy about this section. In verses 13 through 24, what we've just looked at and we just read, Paul uses personal pronouns, I, me, my, those, 38 times. 38 times throughout that section, he's, he's using personal pronouns talking about himself. Now, this is really uncommon for the way that the apostle Paul writes, but it's very purposefully used here for two reasons. One is it drives home the point that the solution is not found in me. 
over and over again, he's saying, I've looked to myself, I've tried really hard. I, I thought if I just knew more, then I would get it. And every time I found, man, I'm just failing. I'm just, I'm just failing at this thing. And secondly, it draws the contrast that victory is only in Jesus. What he's saying is stop looking to yourself to win your war with sin. Stop, stop trying your hardest. Stop doing your best. Your best isn't enough. You need more. You need something greater. You need Jesus to do it in you and to do it for you. So we have these mental shifts, these major mental shifts that are taking place throughout Romans chapter six and chapter seven. And I just want to go back over. I want to highlight them for you as we conclude this today. And then I want to take you to one place just to illustrate this. But there are seven mental shifts that you need in order to win your war with sin. Chapter six, verse three is the first one. You have to know that the old man is dead with Jesus. The flesh is dead with Jesus on the cross. That when Jesus died, you died too. You've got to know that to win your war with sin. Secondly, in verse six of chapter six, the old man is not in control because Jesus is in control. That, that your flesh no longer has control because Jesus is on that seat and so the flesh is dethroned. And then verse nine of chapter six, the third thing you need to know in order to win your war with sin, the new man has supernatural power by Jesus. He doesn't just take the old man out of you, he puts a new man into you. And that new man is given supernatural power by Jesus. The fourth thing, verse 16 of chapter six, you are the slave of Jesus. That when Jesus saved you, he didn't save you to make you God. He saved you to dethrone you so that he would be God. Enthroned in your life, you become his slave. And if that mentality isn't in you, you're not gonna win your war with sin. Fifthly, chapter seven, verse one, you are under the authority of Jesus. You're not just his slave and he doesn't know what you're doing and you're kind of over there. No, you're under his direct authority. He knows exactly what's happening in your life. He directs the steps. He directs the path. When you submit to that, you win your war with sin. Chapter seven, verse seven, number six, the law reveals my desperate need for Jesus. I cannot do this on my own. And then chapter seven, verse 14, the law is accomplished in me by Jesus. This is how you win your war with sin. It's all about letting go of that old life and taking hold of the new that the Lord has for you. It's all about submitting your life to the Lordship of Jesus. It's all about taking hold of that for which he's taken hold of you and allowing him his right place by no longer catering to and coddling the flesh. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32. I just want to read something with you, make a couple of comments, and then we'll be done. Genesis chapter 32. Now, this is a, a section in Genesis that's talking about a couple of guys, Jacob and Esau. They were twin brothers, and Jacob, his entire life has been lived basically trying to work an angle to get whatever he wanted or try to push somebody down to get something else or try to trick somebody. Really, it's an illustration. Jacob's life is an illustration of living by the power of the flesh. If I want it, I got to do it. If I, if I need that thing, I got to trick them out of it. I got to figure out how to get it for myself. In fact, that's how Jacob got his name. The word Jacob or the name Jacob actually means heel catcher or supplanter. It's like I'm trying to trip you up is the whole idea. And, and the reason he got that name is because as he was being born, he was literally holding on to his brother's heel, his twin brother, as he was being born. I mean, imagine that. That'd be a pretty crazy thing to see. 
And so he's doing this. Now let's read Genesis 32, 22 through 31. There's kind of a bigger piece, but it lays out a story for us that I think is a great illustration for this. Genesis 32, 22 says this, and he arose, is talking about Jacob, and he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. Then he took them and sent them over the brook and he sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched his, the socket of his hip and his socket, the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. Now, why would I bring up such an obscure story right here? You see, Jacob's life and this moment is an illustration of what you and I need to grasp. Jacob lived the entire, his entire life up to this moment in the power of his flesh. So much so that Jacob, he tricked his brother Esau out of his birthright and then he ran away and he took off and he'd been gone for many years. Many years later, as Jacob is, is returning home, his twin brother Esau is coming to meet him and he's coming with 400 men and Jacob is fearful for his life. And so he's trying to do whatever he can. He's taking his family and his, his goods and he's trying to split them up. And he's saying, okay, if, if they attack us, then you guys run this way and you guys run that way and hopefully we'll make it. And, and he's trying to figure out his way out of this situation, out of this terrible situation. And that night, God meets with him. That's where it says this man wrestled with him. That was the Lord that, that met with Jacob. And he wrestled with Jacob and Jacob would not submit himself to God. He wrestled God all night long to the point where God said, fine, you can have it your way and was leaving. And then Jacob clings to him and says, hey, bless me. And what does God give him the blessing of? The blessing of brokenness. It says that God touched his hip. And, and later we read that the, the muscle around his hip socket actually shrank. And he was crippled literally for the rest of his life. God forced Jacob into a position where he was no longer able to lean on his flesh. Now he was forced to lean on the Lord. He had to trust God in a new way. And this physical change represented a spiritual change that God was performing. You see, this crippling thing was not what Jacob wanted, but it was exactly what he needed. It was exactly what he needed. Here, as God does this physical transformation in Jacob's life, he also gives him a spiritual transformation. If you notice there, he changed his name from Jacob, from hill catcher, to Israel, governed by God. He said, I'm not just going to change your physical stature, your physical life. I'm going to change your spiritual life as well. I'm going to change entirely who you are. I'm going to give you a new nature. No longer are you going to be the one trying to work the angle. Now you're going to rest and trust in God. And from this point on, Jacob would no longer stand on his own. He would no longer lean on his flesh. He had to lean on God. He was transformed into Israel. So let me ask you a question. What if the thing that you're avoiding and trying to run away from at all costs, what if that's the exact thing God's trying to use to change you, to transform you, 
to get you to the end of you so you'll finally submit to him? What if that thing is what God is doing in your life to get you to the end of yourself? Will you submit to him in his way? Will you give up your life and your pursuits and allow Jesus to have his right place, to have his right position? Jesus alone can deliver you from that body of death. Will you trust him to do it? I pray you will. When you encounter a huge chasm or large canyon, it's hard to imagine that you could be connected to the other side due to the space and distance between where you are and where the other edge of the canyon is. But it's reassuring to know and to hear in Romans that nothing shall be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You've been listening to Redemption Radio today with Pastor Cody. As he's been teaching through the book of Romans, you get some insight into God's heart for you. There's no limit or no point where his love will come to an end when it comes to God's love and devotion to you. Do you find that hard to believe today? Read Romans 8 to remind you that God's love for you is endless. It's not like a human love that can fail or disappoint you. God's love is above that, and He cares for you better than anyone. Have you experienced that kind of love by God? We sure hope so. One of the most important ways to experience the love of God is through His family, the church. If you're not connected with the church, we invite you to join us this Sunday at Redemption Calvary. Head over to our website to get more information on directions, times, and even to subscribe to our podcast. Go to redemptioncalvary.org. We hope you'll continue learning and growing through this book of Romans. Pastor Cody will be back again next time to continue where he left off. So make sure to tune in again here on Redemption Radio.